Section 23 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Maxwell. Criminal Investigation, a Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers, and Lawyers. Volume 3 by Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. Chapter 18. Continued. Seals on letters, etc. From the time gummed envelopes were introduced, letters have seldom been sealed. On that account, it is worth noting that the use of a light, soluble ink is the surest means of preventing the unauthorized opening of letters. We close the flap part of the envelope, let it dry, and write slantingly on the gummed part of the flap the name of the sender with a flowing ink such as aniline. If any unauthorized person desires to open the letter, the gummed part of the envelope must be wetted when the writing will smudge. And black cabinets have long since ceased to be useful. Notwithstanding, the opening of sealed letters, especially slightly sealed letters containing money or something of value, has in no way ceased. The capital of the letter thief is consequently considerable, and as a rule he is only detected when the circumstances of the forgery are known and consistently can be examined into. The commonest method of breaking a seal of lac and renewing it is to use gypsum or plaster of Paris. A rim of wax is carefully made round the seal, and a pulp of the best freshly burnt plaster of Paris poured on the carefully oiled seal. When the plaster has set, the negative is slowly raised, the seal is broken, and is afterwards renewed from the greased mold. The first impression is generally successful, but it is usually impossible to make a second impression, because, as a rule, small pieces of plaster stick to the hot sealing wax, so that the impression is spoilt. However, the forger only requires one impression. Finally, the little pieces of plaster which have stuck must be carefully removed. Under the magnifying glass, these are generally found and betray the process employed. The manipulation is easier when, instead of plaster of Paris, kneaded fresh breadcrumb is used. The paste is pressed firmly on and the seal taken up and dried with heat. We can easily obtain one impression in this way, but it is not as sharp as the original. Chemically, or with the microscope, traces of breadcrumb can be found attached to the seal. If the seal is not well washed, the chemist can discover the use of breadcrumb with iodine. In the black cabinet of Louis the Fourteenth. The process was to place the letter with the seal upwards on an anvil, and on the seal a small lead plate was laid. Then with a hammer a sharp blow was given, which smashed the sealing wax into a thousand fragments, but before doing so impressed the seal on the lead plate. The lead plate could be used as a matrix as often as was desired. Such forgeries can be recognized in the impression as the lead plate makes a mark round the seal on the paper of the envelope. In this direction, it is interesting, and also in our case instructive, to learn how forgeries were done in ancient days. Bucompagni, the Florentine, relates that an Italian abbot used to make seals, papal bulls, etc., of a peculiar, closely knitted substance which he called cinerincium. John V. Schellendorf, a famous forger of the 14th century, used sulfur paste. Frequently, impressions were cut in a peculiar style. An innocent three gave special instructions in which he indicated the methods of forging the papistical seal. 
The ordinary method with wax seals was to cut them off with a thin, hot knife and stick them on again. Genuine adhering double seals fastened to a false document were cut in two with a horsehair, moistened with turpentine, and then riveted together again. Coining No useful purpose could be served by describing in detail the methods of coiners. Indeed, to do so would be opposed to public policy. The investigating officer must try to find out the origin of the false coin on the market, and if he succeeds, he may light upon the coiner himself, and the possession of coining articles will suffice to bring about his conviction. If any articles are found with him, such as depicted in figure 149, they will form very strong evidence of the owner's walk in life. In India, coiners are mostly north countrymen and often work far from their native places. They rarely try to pass the false money themselves, nor will they, if they can help it, even carry any on their persons, but hire a coolie man or woman for that purpose. It may be mentioned that it is a profitable business of coiners in India to manufacture their false rupees from genuine silver. Owing to the depreciation in the value of silver, much more than a rupee's weight may be purchased for a rupee. Figure 149 shows an assortment from the coining implements deposited in the Madras Criminal Museum. A are ladles, B are dyes, C are clay molds, D are tongs, E is a melting pot. Faker Coins The following account of faker coins is taken from Major Gunthorpe's Notes on Criminal Tribes. These people are frequently found throughout India, and the valuable information afforded by Major Gunthorpe will be found useful to those who have to deal with these pests. This is a class of fakers, Mohammedans, who are by profession manufacturers and utterers of counterfeit coin. They come from the Gulberga and its neighborhood and the Sholapur district. Their peer and preceptor lives in Satul Dunek near Gulberga. They wear beads round their necks, and their names invariably end with Shah, thus Unin Shah and Kadur Shah, and their costume is the same as that of the ordinary faker. Hindustani is spoken with a strong Canarese accent and in the usual faker style. In addressing women, my, mother, and men, data, are uttered in more than ordinarily cringing manner. The country is traversed by small gangs of from two to six, and boys, as a rule, accompany them. The Deccan, the central provinces, and bearer are the parts most frequented. Their homes are left in the beginning of the cold season, and the commencement of the monsoon generally sees them back. They put up at places usually frequented by fakers, at saint's tomb, or in fakers' houses in the vicinity of towns or villages. The boys who accompany them are, as a rule, used for passing the flash rupees. Women never accompany them. All their goods and chattels are carried by themselves. When questioned as to the class of fakers to which they belong, the reply is to the Mundari class. When arrested, they exhibit no fear, but keep on protesting that they are poor mendicants. The mode adopted for passing the counterfeit coin is almost invariably the same. The victims selected are generally women. The faker, or one of the boys, says he has a number of coppers and is willing to give seventeen or eighteen annas for the rupee, and that, being strangers to the part of the country, they do not know the correct change. The offer is accepted, the coppers are counted out, and the rupee is asked for. Taking it in his hand, the man dexterously changes it, substituting a counterfeit, and at once says the rupee is bad and he cannot take it. 
The victim, not suspecting anything, offers another, which is also treated in the same way, and so on until no more genuine ones are remaining, and the faker gathers up his change, or perhaps, in the first instance, the coiner takes up his coppers and passes on. One of these men has been known to pass no less than eleven counterfeit rupees into a tanda of bungaras, lumbadis, in one day. These coiners pass great quantities of false coins during their peregrinations. Large fares are much resorted to for the purpose, and it is curious how rarely they are detected. The implements used for the manufacture of base coin are simple. A mold of earth, an iron spoon, a pair of pincers, and a small knife constitute the lot. The mold is made of a kind of earth called by them city pate muti. It is pounded very fine and worked to a proper consistency with water. A rupee is covered with this prepared earth and well pressed on all sides, and, to take the impression better, it is further tapped all round with a flat piece of wood. A cut is then made through it going along the edge of the rupee and a small hole made in the side of the mold, wedge-shaped, to admit of the melted metal being poured in. A mark is also made across the cut mentioned above to admit of the mold being correctly fixed when ready. The lump of clay is now wrapped over with several layers of rag. A thick coating of clay is put over this again and the whole lump is put in the fire. When the mold is considered sufficiently baked, the outer layer of clay and the rags are removed, the mold opened and the rupee taken out, and it is complete. The two pieces are put together and melted substance poured in, this is generally pewter. The false rupee is taken out and perfected by the hand with the small knife and is then ready for passing. The manufacture of false coin is carried on in lonely places, generally in jungle or wastelands. Counterfeit coin is carried in the longati worn by two or three of each gang, the passers. The pockets for holding the rupees are attached to the inner side of the front part of the longati under the front flap and tied very tightly. On a man being searched, the lungati is undone from the back and allowed to hang down in front. The inner part, being hidden by the front flap, escapes notice. These people possess always a leather bag in which, on the march, they carry their coining implements, and in addition some of the fine earth, loose, and some white metal. When halted, all the implements are buried in the neighborhood of their resting place. These fakers may readily be recognized by their extremely cringing manner and by the canary's accent. The only time all their implements are with them is when on a journey from place to place. End of section 23